Now then, let's turn to the book that we've been studying on Lord's Day mornings. That's the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And uh, you'll find it on page 306 in the Church Bible. The book of Ruth, chapter 1. Just to fill in perhaps those who know very little about this, Naomi, a woman of God, has gone with her husband and two sons from Bethlehem to Moab, which was an act of disobedience, actually, to God. They ought not to have done that. And God visits the home with discipline, with chastisement. Naomi loses her husband. She loses her two sons. But through time, as she's living with her two daughters-in-law, she hears the call to go back home. She recognizes her responsibility to go back home, and she does so. Um, The two daughters-in-law have an opportunity to go back with her. One does, and one doesn't. And uh, we'll pick up the reading when Naomi and Ruth, that's the daughter-in-law who did go back to Israel, with her. Uh, We'll pick up the reading when they're arriving in Bethlehem. At verse 19, Ruth 1 at verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. So again then, at the end of verse 19, we read that the woman said, that's the woman of Bethlehem, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? Now last time we focused particularly on the contrasting choices made by these two young women. Two women with whom the Lord was dealing and who had traveled spiritually quite far, Orpah and Ruth. Um, Sadly, Orpah leaves her mother-in-law and the opportunity to go to the promised land. Ruth, on the other hand, cleaves to her. Orpah comes close, but she leaves, as Naomi tells us, she leaves for her gods and for her people. Ruth, on the other hand, cleaves to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God. And I want us to really understand, and I'm sure it is available online, I want us to understand that these are spiritual choices. They're not based on culture. They're not based on people, tradition, nothing like that. They are fundamentally spiritual choices. That's how they're brought before us in this book. Orpah rejects 
the God who had drawn near to her. Ruth cleaves to him. And with these choices, uh, the first chapter really closes in the story. I'm conscious it doesn't close in the book. Our chapter divisions are man-made, we remember that. But uh, really, the first part of the story closes with that. And the second part really begins with the arrival of Naomi and Ruth in Bethlehem. And that's what I want to focus on with you this morning, with God's help. As they enter the city, which is really a small town, the word city is used more loosely in the Old Testament than than we would use it. Bethlehem is just a small town, and as they begin to enter it, everybody really gathers around them, and they ask a strange question, which is, is this Naomi? It's a strange question because, well, in the first place, they obviously knew who she was. They're not asking this question as though they had only heard of her and never met her. They're asking the question for another reason. Remember, the the whole town is gathering. It's a small town. Uh, She's only been away for about, well, something like 12 to 15 years. In that period of time, we don't really change normally beyond all recognition. Obviously, the meaning is, is this her? Uh, We know it's her, but is this really her? Is this the same woman that actually left? Interestingly, our translation here tells us that it's the woman who asked it. And that's a very useful insight because... Uh, The Hebrew word for they uh, is feminine. Uh, So it is the women who are asking the question. Uh, What does that convey? Well, I think the woman who probably knew her very well, as probably a woman of uh, outstanding beauty and wealth and so on, they're amazed at the change in her appearance. She's changed way beyond what they expected her to change. Now, we all know things that change your appearance in life. Number one, of course, is age. Yes, it certainly does. Health can change your experience. Uh, Experience, sorry. Health can change your appearance. Experience can change your appearance too. For example, if you have a tremendous amount of sorrow in your life, uh, that can be in your appearance too. But what's changed Naomi's appearance is the Lord's chastisement over these years. Chastisement, perhaps is a word that's a bit out of fashion, a bit out of use. Discipline, if you like, or even correction. It's the Lord's discipline or correction that's changed her appearance. Now, David tells us uh, that sometimes God afflicts the body itself when he chastises us. Um, And even if he doesn't afflict the body, our chastisement will affect our body. Yes, he certainly can afflict it, even in the Corinthian church. The the abuse of the Lord's Supper was leading to people in the congregation becoming sick. They were oblivious to the reason. They should have been asking themselves the reason. You know, God can intervene with terrible judgments, and people are oblivious to it. They don't ask the right questions. But the reason Paul says that 
the sickness is there is because your abuse of the Lord's Supper. But even if the chastisement of God is actually just simply internal, it still affects the body. In Psalm 32 there, Paul tells us, sorry, David tells us that he felt uh, like an old man long before his time. He, he felt that he was just aging. He could hardly move. His life moisture, as he describes it, was dried up because of God's chastening hand upon him day and night. Now, I'm sure he tried to explain it away in other ways, as we would all do. But he says that's what it was. It was God's chastening hand upon me. And sometimes God's chastisement is written on our faces. David says in Psalm 42 that God is the health of my countenance. In other words, he says, my face shows something about what the Lord is doing in my life. I think we've probably all known that. We've met people whose faces are somehow full of the presence of the Lord, full of the joy of the Lord. We've met others, and perhaps their faces tell of bitterness, hardship, sorrow, various things. I remember reading, that's a good few years ago, but I I remember reading a column uh, written by a GP who who said that a good GP, a, a good general practitioner, a good doctor will be able to to tell a lot that's wrong with a patient before they sit down and say anything. Because if they're really skillful, if they they know their task, and if they can do diagnosis properly, they'll literally diagnosis, they will see through. That's dia, and gnosis means to see through. And he said they should be able to tell from the eyes, from the skin, from the hair, uh, even from the posture before the person sits down. I think the same thing is true spiritually, that if, if we were all more acute spiritually than maybe we are, we could recognize a lot about each other just in our very faces. Sometimes uh, just from a few words that we can speak, even if we're not really intending to reveal anything, if a person is sharp and spiritual, they can pick up where you are. Maybe quite a frightening thought, that, but it should be true and right of us all that we're well able to read each other's faces. Now, let's allow Naomi to, to tell her own story about her own appearance. Is this Naomi? Are you really Naomi? What does she say? Well, yes, she says. It's me. But I am almost a different person. And it's no wonder you should ask if it's really me. You know me as Naomi, which means pleasant. And as far as I'm concerned, she says, you should give me another name. You should call me Mara, which means bitterness. And she says, you should call me Mara because, in verse 20, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Call me bitterness because God has dealt bitterly with me. And that's what's in my face. You wonder at my changed appearance. You wonder what the spiritual message of my face is. Well, this is it. God has dealt bitterly with me. Now, what does she mean by that? Well, of all the taste groups, like uh, sour and salty and sweet and so on, 
Bitterness is the one that's generally acknowledged to be pretty much unpleasant anyway. In other words, you need something else along with it to cope with it. Um, so it stands for something that's unpleasant, something that you recoil from. So if, if an experience is unpleasant to you, if it's hard to take and even hard to think about, then it's bitter. And what she's essentially saying is that God's dealings with her for the past, what, ten years or so, have been unpleasant and hard to take and hard to reflect on. Now that reminds us that sometimes God's chastisement is not over in a week or a month or a year. The chastisement that David endured for his sin it lasted a long time, and uh, some of us could well be a few years under the heaviness of God's hand. To, to different degrees, according to need, he's the physician, he's the father, he knows how to discipline. Thankfully, the letter to the Hebrews reminds us that sometimes as earthly parents we get it wrong. But he says that God disciplines us always for our profit. He never gets it wrong. The timing is right, the extent is right. So she is saying that the Lord's dealings with her have been very unpleasant and very hard to take. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to linger at this right now, but I do think there's something in her words that indicate that she's not fully recovered from the Lord's chastisement. She's just about to be, but she's not yet fully recovered from it. Uh, the reasons for that I'll give you later on. But how has the Almighty dealt bitterly with her? Well, again, let her explain it herself. She explains it in verse 21. You see, you've got the main statement in verse 20. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And then you've got the explanation in verse 21. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home empty again. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home empty. An interesting expression. Uh, true in different ways. But what concerns us right now is what she really meant by it. What she meant is very simple, really. When she left Bethlehem, she had a husband, two sons, wealth, status, reputation in the community, and so on. She's coming back 15 years later, let's say, no husband, no sons, no wealth, no status, entirely dependent on charity. And who was going to give it? For all she knew, perhaps everyone in Bethlehem was pretty bitter that they had gone in the first place. It was a poor witness in a time of famine for a family like this to fail to trust in God. Maybe there were many there who said, oh, well, stay in Moab. Um, you should never have left the land. She's empty. For all she knows, there's not a soul in that place who's going to have any interest in her or in her daughter-in-law. And a widow's portion was tough then. Very, very tough. No social security network, nothing. Now, of course... Um, Although she says that I'm home empty, she's not empty. We know that. She's not empty. She's not empty because God's with her. 
And I shouldn't just say that God's with her. What we should say is that God is indwelling her, and therefore she can't be empty at all. How can anyone who has the presence of God inside them as a saving, redeeming, loving, gracious, merciful God, how can a person like that be empty? But the thing is, you see, that God's chastisement always leaves us feeling like this. It has to. It strips us. It it empties us. I mean, God has to chastise us to the point where we recognize that all we really have is God. In fact, I'd go further than that. It strips us to the point where we recognize that all we really need is God. These are two different things. They're related, of course. All I have is God, and all I need is God. I mean, I'm sure God has dealt with... We all need chastisement. Let's not pretend here or play games or try and look at who God has chastised. We've all experienced, to some degree or another, the chastisement of God. And you will have discovered in that chastisement, as you reflect and look back on it, that God stripped you and took you to a point where you realize, "Ah, all all I've got is really God. That's all I've got. And all I need is really God. And it's a good thing to discover that. So God dealt bitterly with me by emptying me, she said, by emptying me. And then she breaks that down even further. Verse 21 again, I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Let's reverse these. First, the Almighty has afflicted me. He's done it. None of these things that happened just happened. My husband dying, my son's dying, losing everything I had. God did it. God did it. And you see, this is taking us back to what we looked at. And I can't stop to prove this a second time because I think we proved it when we were beginning the book. The decision to leave Bethlehem was really Naomi's. I know the husband carried the can because he's the husband, but she was the prime mover and God's dealing with her accordingly. The husband disappears in verse 3 of chapter 1. The story is Naomi's. And she's conscious that God has afflicted me. He has brought one experience after another into my life which has been hard and difficult. He afflicted me. And what's more, she said, he has testified against me. Now, that's an astonishing thought because we always think and we like to think, and it's beautiful to think as God, of God as testifying for us. This is my son. This is my daughter. God is not ashamed to be called our God. A staggering text. He's got every reason to be ashamed to be called our God. Every reason. The sad thing is that We're sometimes ashamed of him for no reason whatsoever. But he is never ashamed to be called our God. But lo and behold, here he is testifying against Naomi. Uh, What that means is something like this. God disciplining someone who's done something openly and deliberately against the word of God. Right? We're not talking about subtle, uh, secret things here. We're talking about going against God's word in an open way. And God is saying, look, I've seen that happen. I want you to see that I have dealt with it. And I want you to look at this as an example of what happens when somebody turns away from me. 
Look and learn. That's what she's saying. She's saying to the woman of Bethlehem, take a good look here because God is testifying against me. My face, my my life story is in my face. The last 15 years are written in my face and look at it because the Almighty is testifying against me. He has disciplined me because of my stubbornness, my sin, my determination to put my standard and quality of life before obedience to God. I wanted my way, my comforts, And this is what I've got. God has done it. And it's a testimony. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about that that are very important. First of all, I want you to notice the quality of humility in it. Charles Spurgeon, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, but Charles Spurgeon was once asked for for a mark of a Christian, a really good mark of a true Christian. And he's no, he was asked for three good marks. And he said... Well, that's easy, he said. Humility, humility, and humility. When you're truly repentant, when when God has dealt with something in your life, you don't care what people really think of you. Maintaining a face, putting a face on things, that doesn't matter anymore. What matters is God and you and the people too, and that the people know the truth. Naomi's happy enough to say, she's not going to gloss it over. She's not going to pretend things were different. She's going to say, she's going to tell them what happened. She's there to teach and to share her experience. How pathetic would it be if if God had really dealt with us over a 15-year period and then we tried to dress ourselves up and said, oh, well, you know, nothing really happened. She's humble enough to acknowledge the fact that she had sinned and that God has dealt with that sin. She's not proud. There's a little detail you should notice here in verse 21, where she says, I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home empty. Do you notice what she doesn't say? She doesn't say, the Lord took me out full, and the Lord brought me home empty. She said, I went out full, and the Lord took me back. You'd almost miss it, but it's hugely important. She's basically saying, I take the blame. God didn't take me out. I probably said to my husband that God really wants us to go. God doesn't mean us to live in a famine. Common sense tells us to get out of the famine and to go to Moab. And here she's saying, God never did that. You know, I I meet people quite often, I'm sure you all do, who try and dress up their decisions as God's will. Oh, I feel good about it, or I feel right about it. When God's word is just flatly ruling out the course of action that they're taking. She's not doing that here. She's saying, I did it. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned in thy sight done this evil. Wasn't my husband really who took us out of Bethlehem? It was me. And in doing that, she's defending God, you see. And that's the other sign of a Christian. Even when God has really put you in a crucible, and when God has really, really dealt with you in a pretty tough way, you still come out of that and you say, he was right to do so. As David said, that those mayst be clear in judging still. Uh, You visited my home, David said. With chastisement, you visited me, but you're clear in doing it. I justify you. 
I justify you. And she is justifying God here. Humility. That's the sign that someone's out of a chastisement. Or pretty much out of it anyway. I want to qualify that a little bit later on, but it's, it's the sign. If a person hasn't got humility, God's not finished dealing with them. He's not finished. And very often you can see that in the face. The second thing I wanted to say about it was this, that you see, some people quote verse 20. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. They quote that verse as though Naomi was bitter. But I want you to notice very carefully that the text doesn't say that Naomi's bitter at all. It doesn't say that God is bitter either for that matter because God isn't bitter against his own people. But the text doesn't say that Naomi's bitter either but that the Almighty dealt bitterly with her. In other words, the Almighty gave her experiences that were really bitter to her taste. It doesn't say that she is bitter. Now, of course, you can be bitter when God chastises you. And in fact, the the passage that we read in Hebrews 12 is a a real warning against that. Uh, I'm conscious that when we were looking at Naomi a little bit earlier, a few weeks ago, we looked at chastisement, but I want to revisit something of that and uh, take up something that I didn't say. Uh, In chastisement, uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, don't respond wrongly to it, right? He says, first of all, don't despise God's chastisement. You can despise it by ignoring it, um, not listening to it, toughing it out, you know, like I said earlier, sometimes God comes with a terrible blow to people, to congregations, to churches, and nobody's asking the right questions, oblivious. In fact, <clears throat> Isaiah, the prophet, in the first chapter, um, God says to Judah, what's the point of chastising you anymore, he says. You're black and blue from the top of your head to the sole of your foot. Uh, what's the point? Because you're not listening. Very solemn. So don't despise the Lord's chastisement. But then the writer to the Hebrews says, neither, on the other hand, faint under it or be discouraged. In other words, neither feel so oppressed and downtrodden by it that you're just going to give up. Or, supposing you don't even feel like giving up, maybe you just get bitter. And that's why he says in this connection of chastisement, he says, beware lest a root of bitterness spring up in you and many become defiled. Bitter, yourself bitter. That means that not only, now let's notice this, when you become bitter, it means that not only is the experience bitter to your taste, but you yourself become bitter. And people who taste you or experience you feel bitterness and they taste bitterness off you because you've become bitter. In other words, you resent the dealing of God with you. You resent it. It's not just that it's unpleasant, but you you begin, in other words, to turn your bitterness towards God. It's a dangerous thing. That's why the example given in Hebrews was Esau. You see, when God dealt with Esau, Jacob's twin... Esau just uh, 
set himself in the other direction. He became bitter and resentful. You see, Esau ought to have accepted that his younger twin was God's man, was God's choice for the birthright. But Esau sold his birthright, and years later he thought he could still get the blessing, even if he didn't have a Christian life or anything of that kind. And he was amazed that the blessing was going to be given to Jacob. And he sought it with tears. But uh, Isaac wouldn't change his mind because he knew that Esau had become an old, bitter man. He was a fornicator and a profane person, but he was also bitter against his father, bitter against his mother, bitter against his brother, and bitter against God. Bitterness, bitterness. The word bitterness is almost onomatopoeic. It, it comes from the same, it's the same root as the word bite, and it has a bite in it, a bitter person. And when that comes into your life as a Christian, it's easy to recognize because you're sitting under God's chastisement and the kind of things you say are, I didn't really deserve this. Why did this come my way? This is far harder than anything I should be passing through. Notice how different all that is from David. Against thee, the only have I sinned in thy sight on this silver and so on. I didn't deserve this. And it's too excessive. Now, in a way, it's easy to see why we could respond like that. And I'll tell you why. Because the very reason you needed chastisement was because you had drifted away from God. Openly, against his word. That's what Naomi did. And that's the very condition that makes it difficult to recognize God's chastisement when it comes. See, it's because you're spiritually dying that God is chastising you. But when God starts chastising you, that spiritual death makes it very difficult for you to realize what's happening and to be reconciled to it. You, you can kick against it unless you're humbled by it very, very quickly. The Lord's hand heavy, but you're not asking the right questions. And you begin to resent the dealings of God. Oh, there is such a thing, friend, as being bitter against God. And sometimes it's in your face. It's in your face. Maybe even it's not a question of who else can see it. Maybe, just maybe, you can look in the mirror and see it yourself. But for some reason, over 5, 10, 15 years, you've been bitter against God. Remember, I'm not talking about the fact that he's put bitter things in your experience. I'm talking about you being bitter against him. Such a thing can happen. But my point is that that's not the case with Naomi here. You see, we have no warrant from the verse here to say that Naomi is bitter against God. In fact, her humility argues that she's not. Because bitter people are not humble people. Bitter people are very aggressive people. They'll sit justifying themselves to your face. But that's not this woman here, you see. There's no trace of bitterness at all. Yes, he has afflicted me, and, and he has testified against me, and he has dealt bitterly with me. But I am not bitter. I went out, and he has taken me home. And she's thanking God for that. And if that's the case, then we have to look at her fullness and emptiness in a slightly different way. I went out full, 
and the Lord has taken me home empty. She meant husband, sons, wealth and status. But we could say this, and this would be true. This would be absolutely true. I went out full of pride, vanity and self-sufficiency. And I've come back home humble. I went out full of myself. And God has taken me back empty of myself. Now, we can't really leave it there. Because, and this is the wonderful thing, when God disciplines, what he's do, what's he doing? He's correcting. He's, the Bible tells us that he does not willingly afflict the children of men. He's got no pleasure in that. that the, the secret behind all this just lies in the constitution of our souls and the way in which we're made and the way in which we need handling. He's just got to do it. It's just, it's just the way by which we are corrected. That's fragile, handled with care, and thankfully he knows how to do it. And whenever God empties his people, it's with a view to filling them again. Bitter herbs are necessary, but then he gives the sweetness. Naomi hasn't yet got the joy of the Lord back. At least I would suggest to you that she hasn't. Now, you may want to come back at, back at me on that, by all means do, but I would suggest to you that where she is in her experience is that she has been humbled, she recognizes the hand of God, she acknowledges his justice, and she's not ashamed to say all that, but she just hasn't got the joy of the Lord back in her life. You know, I think if it did, um, they would have detected that in Bethlehem. And she would have had a very different statement to make from the one that she's making. The one that she's making is, I know what you're seeing in my face. It's not joy. There's a reason for that. Call me Mara. Call me Mara. Um, it takes a wee while for the joy to come back, even if the repentance is there. You know, when David had repented in Psalm 51, and he had genuinely repented, he still prays in that psalm, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. He didn't have it back. Now God has his own purpose in that, you see. He's just got his own purpose in that. He takes a while before he ministers back the joy. And I just don't think Naomi's there. Like I said, she knows she's done wrong. She sees it. She accepts her testament. She's put it right. She put it right. Notice how important that is. She had chances to come back home earlier. This is the first time she's taken the chance. But I think she's still struggling to see how all this is going to work together for the good. Can you identify with that? You've crossed that hurdle and that one and that one, but you still struggle to see what God is doing in the midst of all this. Now, you and I can both say, oh, well, look at the next three chapters. But she hasn't got the book of Ruth to read, has she? She doesn't see how that's going to work out. She's got no idea. In fact, I would, I would argue that she has no idea at this point how significant the girl with her actually is. No idea whatsoever. She's thankful that she's made a good choice, but she's got no idea how important she's going to become in the life of Israel. She, she just can't see it. 
And I think that takes us, in a sense, to the bitter waters of Mara that Israel came to. And I'm, I'm closing with this. When Israel came to water in the wilderness after three days of thirst, they did their usual, which was complain. And they complained to Moses. Um, God showed Moses a tree. And when Moses put the tree into the waters, they were sweetened. Now, that's a, a microcosmic uh, episode, uh, which can be, in our experience, stretched out for quite a while. Taking bitterness, uh, complaining first, then in our wisdom crying out to God, and then experiencing the sweetness of the waters. You see, <clears throat> what's needed for the waters to be really sweetened is a thorough understanding of what God's actually doing, you see. And I'm here going to take casting the tree into the waters as a kind of picture, that's all. Just a kind of picture of, of, the, of God putting the cross into our bitter experiences. In other words, uh, we start to pray over these experiences. We start to meditate on these experiences. We start to think of what God is doing through these experiences and that he's speaking. And we're asking God to show us how these things will work together for the good. Now, when that happens, they cease to be bitter, these experiences. Well, they're bitter in the sense that they're unpleasant still to the taste, but we see them in the wider scheme of things. Our souls begin to come to peace because we know that God is using them and God is doing something through them. So we're able to live with them. We're not embittered by them. It's a pain we can live with and grow through. Now, that's what Naomi needs to see. I think she's coming into Bethlehem with her head hanging pretty low. But in a way she needn't. Because the Lord who's emptied her cup is going to fill it right up. He always does, friends. He always does. And like I said, he's got no clue. She's got no clue, really, that the, the girl who's come with her from Moab is going to be mightily used by the Lord. Uh, let's turn to that next time. Let us pray. <clears throat> O Lord, bring us always to that place in your dealings with us where we say with David, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Help us to believe that your thoughts towards us are thoughts of peace and not thoughts of evil. Help us to understand that the dark threads are as needful in the loom as the bright threads, and the faith to believe that you are working all things together for the good, for them that love God and who are called according to your purpose. Lord, help us to fear sin and to fear its consequences. Help us to recognize that although it may appear fascinating and charming, it is always deceptive, and its sting is always in the tail. Help us to understand when it tempts us that it has the power to destroy us. Help us to remember that our happiness always lies in obedience. When we fall, grant us repentance. 
Grant us faith. In our Savior's name. Amen. Our last uh, singing is Psalm 43, on page 264. Psalm 43, and page 264. We're singing to the tune, Martyrs, at verse 3, and this is a person uh, going up to the presence of God to worship. Oh, send thy light forth and thy truth. Let them be guides to me and bring me to thine holy hill, even where thy dwellings be. Now, this man is a Levite. He's got the duty of uh, leading in worship and playing here the harp. Then will I to God's altar go, to God my chiefest joy. Yea, God, my God, thy name to praise, my harp I will employ. And then he talks to himself. Why art thou then cast down, my soul? What should discourage thee? Sometimes we go to worship like that, but worship itself just lifts us right up. And why with vexing thoughts art thou disquieted in me? Still trust in God. For him to praise, good cause I yet shall have. He of my countenance is the health, my God that doth me save. These uh, verses, let's stand to sing them. of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <clears throat>